Welcome to the Simpleton Podcast. Today we're doing our part two on the McCarrick Report. After this is all over, we're going to rename this the Alienate Everyone Podcast. Uh, I'm here with Laura Heeman. She's in her horsey-themed room, and I'm here in my shop, wood shop in Kansas City. Hi, Laura. Hey, Clark. <laughs> all right. This is not my room. <laughs> <All right. laughs> when you stop filming there, I'll stop bringing it up. Uh so for Christmas, I got these really great earphones um, that mm-hmm. were kind of like the noise canceling earphones. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that like blew me away was like listening to music from the 70s, like yeah. John Denver, right? Because like I somehow assumed that that music was kind of crackly when it was recorded. And now I don't know if they've like, you know, cleaned it up digitally or something, but it's just like unbelievable. It like blows my mind to listen to it in all its clarity. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. And um, so I fell down this weekend down a carpenter's wormhole. Okay. You know who the carpenters are? Okay. Oh, oh, oh yes, yes, the band. Yes. yes. Sorry. All right. So like, I'm like watching documentaries on the carpenters, uh-huh. watching all the music videos, <laughs> listening to all the music in its purity. You know. Uh-huh. So one of the things that was kind of crazy about that that I thought related in an interesting way was that Karen Carpenter after about 10 years of performing, died at like, I think 32 of anorexia, Mm -hmm. right? And one of the things being brought up was that no one even knew the word anorexia when she was struggling with it. Right. And they didn't know how to address it. They said, eat more, you know, but they didn't like, like all the kind of basic you know, just vocabulary knowledge that we have today, they just didn't yeah. have. They, they said that at yeah. that point, the term anorexia was known by a few specialist therapists, you know, yeah. in the nation, right? And then her death brought a lot of attention to it. And it also made me think about how when Mother One in the McCarrick Report is trying to bring this to the attention of everyone, how she seems to say she didn't have the words for it. Like she knew it was right. super creepy, but she didn't know the word. I don't know if she would have heard sexual predator, pedophile, or I bet pedophile was I around. I my parents, I was asking my parents about this, and they said even the phrase like sexual abuse was right. not, you know, part of the language that people used. Yeah. Even that phrase, yeah. That's all kind of wild and scary. Right. Um, but it, it, it right. clearly was harder for her to bring the attention up or bring the issue up, given that she didn't have the language, Right. Mm-hmm. And I think we found this at Simple House, too, is that, like, we're trying to do a spiritual ministry that's also, like, a charitable ministry. So it's, like, spiritual and material or the corporal and spiritual works of mercy. And we found that, like, like just when we discuss our ministry and how it gets off track and everything, we've had to invent vocabulary. Mm-hmm. You know, like, there wasn't, like, the book of how to do a spiritual material ministry. And then, right. but, like, like, you and I even, like, we'd go back and forth, like, this seems to get off track when you're working with someone who's depressed in this way. And then we'd come up with like my, the term that I think it's a term that I stick with, even though I just, cause I have no better one, but it's called riding someone's train. Like we're like yeah. inventing words like that because right. we just don't have the right concepts to describe what we're doing. And I yeah. felt like inventing those words has been very helpful in doing better ministry. Mm-hmm. And being able to establish norms, right? Once you have right. a concept, you can establish norms around it. And, and you're taking something from just the realm of intuition into like the analytical realm mm-hmm. by doing that at some level. Yeah. 
Okay, so that's interesting. I think. I think the language. I, I think there's gonna we're gonna end up with something like five, four or five factors describing mm-hmm. why this was such a stupid problem no one could seem to solve in the church, mm-hmm. right? And I think one of the factors is language. Mm-hmm. Another thing that keeps coming up is that it seems like in my whole life and probably in everyone's life, you have to kind of come up with an expectation of how sinful other people are, mm-hmm. like how dark you think the world is, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe it's not dark because if we believe we're saved from sin and we can be reformed, maybe just the darker humans are, um, the more the hope, kind of more beautiful the salvation at some level. But yeah. This kind of comes up because if you think humans are courageous, if you think humans don't lie that much, if you think humans aren't usually predators um, or are very rarely predators, then you would not need much of a system to control this problem. Right. right? Because you'd expect people to stand up and people to be courageous and people to push it down. Right. But if you expect people that predators are actually fairly common, mm-hmm. you know, and I say that like they say the pedophilia disorder is between one and five percent of males yeah that's very you know common. which is like means like every large gathering you're in somebody's got yeah. the problem you know yeah. what i mean or is a criminal with it you know yeah. uh, at least has a temptation to it i mean that's kind of shocking right yeah. and like if, yeah. if that's what your belief is you're going to create systems differently yeah. you're going to have different types of schools you're going to have different types of babysitters you're going to have different types of you know just different systems to protect kids well, I, assuming that you are um, interested in doing the right thing and protecting. Yeah, right? assuming, you're not, yeah. <laughs> assuming you're not trying to create a system to abuse people. Yeah. So I think that's kind of an important question that we all have to ask while we review this is like, we're kind of updating our idea of the sinfulness of humanity. And it kind of came up the other day. It was like, whatever you think the sinfulness level of humanity is, like, mm-hmm. however like, let's just take adultery. Like, of all the married couples you know, how many of them are having an adultery problem, right? One of the yeah. partners. And um, it's more its more than you would think because you don't know. <laughs> well, I, I imagine there's some people out there who it's less than they would think. Yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some people who are probably too dark. But, yeah. um, but let's say you have whatever your expectation is of any particular sin or problem, right? Mm-hmm. And let's say the problem's actually four times as bad. Yeah. What's your reaction when you find out it's four times as bad? Does it make you doubt Christ? Does it make you doubt your religion? Yeah. Because you do know a tree by its fruits. Like if Catholics were four times as bad as you thought they were, or the priests were four times as bad as you thought they were, or yeah. does it just change your view of how great the sinfulness is of humanity? Because it's also true that we ourselves are sometimes four times worse than we thought we were. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's kind of the scary part of the day of judgment is you're going to find out all the sins you didn't realize were sins because you were too deep in them or something. Yeah. And with a marriage question, too, it's like, does it shake your faith? And also, does it make you want to throw out the institution of marriage to, you know, and the sacrament of marriage? And I think the same question applies to the church, you know, Um, like it's kind of this huge organization of people. Like, apart from the spiritual side, there's this, like, human organization part of it, you know? Right. It's like, do you throw that out? I think there's also this thing that I feel like Chesterton deserves credit for this idea. Do not be shocked by sin. Be shocked by virtue. Like, if you go through life being blown away that someone's just kind, uh, you tend to have a more optimistic view of the world, even though it's a darker view of the world, than to be shocked when someone is not kind, you Mm -hmm. know, or evil, you know, or does something evil. So. 
I think that virtue is actually the the interesting thing. Mm-hmm. Virtue is inherently more interesting than vice, but it's yeah. almost like you have to have a paradigm shift to kind of get there. But. Yeah. Okay. Do you have any asides before we get to the signpost on this McCarrick report? Well, just another theme here is like the credibility of victims. That That's like another major thing and that plays into the whole. We were talking about that. Like, I have a friend from college who is a lawyer who specializes in sex abuse. And if his client, you know, is accusing someone, the defendant will say, well, you know, the person who's accusing me is on drugs. Or the person accusing me kind of failed out of college or failed out of school or whatever, right? Yeah, and then, they're unstable, and then, however. Yeah, yeah, they're unstable. And a little bit of that could have been why they were victimized to begin with, because maybe they were a little bit more vulnerable. But a lot of that also maybe. is caused yeah. by the abuse. So yeah. that is a theme that comes up. I think lots of stable people are abused as well, but yeah. Right. Right. So it, it's kind of mysterious what, but right, it's caused by a lot of it can be caused by the abuse. And, and in the case of McCarrick, some of the people who were abused also had problems, and that made it easier for them to be dismissed for people who wanted to believe McCarrick was innocent. Yes, but also possibly there was a mindset of, like now, if someone comes forward with an allegation, we take we take it a lot more seriously. And right. maybe before there was a different mindset about not taking it seriously, thinking it was an attack on the church, you know, in a sense, blaming the victim because they have a chip on their shoulder, they're unstable, whatever. The whole idea of like, what is your expectation of how sinful the clergy are mm-hmm. also informs that, yeah. you know, like if you think the clergy yes. are great, yeah. almost to the man, then it's like, you're much more likely to doubt the victim. You know, yes. um, but and then just also, I think the bishops and priests involved in this um, were acting in a way of thinking like it would be unjust to accuse somebody or bring these allegations forward without solid evidence. You know, right. they, they were. Uh, but that's like a big failure in the sense of like, oh, by the way, we're going to go point by point on this. Yeah. I, we're kind of jumping ahead to a high level critique, but. I think yeah. my overall critique is there was no system in place. Yeah. Right? Like when they were reviewing evidence, they were influenced by uh, theological opinion. Is this guy on my side of like what he wants the church to be or not on my side? They were yeah. influenced by just like what they thought of any given witness and how well they liked the guy, whether or not they wanted the mm-hmm. guy to be innocent or not. Right. Yeah. And humanity will never escape that at some level. But like if you just even like look at the U.S. judicial system, it's like, well, you get 12 peers, you're allowed to confront a witness or an accuser, mm-hmm. you're, you know, there's just certain standards they've come up with. And the, none of that was in the church, as right. far as I can tell, like there was just right. no process, you know, and that is a huge, that's got to be if there's five, four or five things that cause this problem, that's one of them. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, do you want to start? Yes, let's start. Oh, go ahead. So it's a 450 page report. It's hard to even lift up and show you on screen how ridiculously <laughs> big this report is. It's a report written by the Vatican trying to determine if bishops and the church itself handled the problem and where the problems were in the way they handled it. Does that sound correct? Yeah. And like no report has ever been done like this before. Yeah. As far as I know, right? Like there was no report like this for the Legionnaires. Yeah, no, anything, no, right? no, nothing like this has ever been. Yeah. A lot of like private files were released for this. Yeah, it reminds me of like the Ken Starr report that they did against Bill Clinton, you know, but I at some level, I don't think 
I'm, I'm impressed by this report, but I hope that this is not the only way we go forward. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's just issuing big reports like this, but yeah. all right. So I'm going to try to go over the early uh, life of McCarrick, not early life, but his appointments as bishop, and then end about when he gets to Washington. And Laura's going to take over summarizing when he's in Washington mm -hmm. through his like kind of forced retirement and everything that came out of that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So last time we summarized that there's two major allegations against McCarrick. One is that he had done stuff against minors. That was brought up by mother number one, but um, that seems to, no one can find her letters that she wrote. And then a lot more people came forward after uh, everything came crashing down uh, very late in the process. So the majority of stuff we're going to cover today is what the church knew about stuff McCarrick had done with seminarians and priests, um, sexual harassment and kind of abusive employees and stuff, and not so much uh, victims who are minors. I mean, the other stuff that came out was anonymous letters sent in the early 90s accusing him of um, indiscretion with minors. And once again, they were anonymous, and they all kind of looked like they were written by the same person. And that kind of made it pretty easy for McCarrick to say, I'm just getting, uh, whatever you call it, colony or somebody's... Persecuted um, or whatever. Persecuted. It's an yeah, attack. Yeah. I have an enemy. McCarrick yeah. was definitely an expert at every turn in this at putting things in a light that favored him. Mm -hmm. Like in this report, there's a lot of letters he wrote defending himself. And you're like, That's, he, he does a really good job of defending himself. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So McCarrick started out in New York and they uh, considered elevating him to the papacy a couple times, 1968, to, to 1972. The, not to the papacy. I'm sorry, to the bishop uh, level. And in both the first, the first time he was considered, when he was only 38 years old, then he was considered at 42. Neither of those times he actually became a bishop. And they sent out huge questionnaires to a lot of his peers and priests and bishops who'd worked with him. And the questionnaires kind of went over everything, including open-ended questions like, any other thing you want to mention? You know, anything that bothers you about this person, right? And really nothing came forward in any time he was being reviewed to be bishop, the only positive things came out. The only slightly negative thing that came out in these like um, uh, evaluations was that eh, he might be a little bit ambitious, you know, and maybe he lacks some candor. Maybe you can't always quite tell what he's thinking, you know. Um, that was just as strong as negative as it was, which isn't very negative at all, probably, mm -hmm. uh, in the grand scheme of everything else is positive. 1977, he became auxiliary bishop in New York City at the age of 47. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no accusations at that point. In 1981, uh, he was transferred to a New Jersey diocese and became bishop of, how do you say it, Laura? I think it's Metuchen. Metuchen. All right. <laughs> and he still hadn't had any significant scandal or even anonymous letters at that point. And he was hugely successful in worldly ways. Like mm -hmm. clearly he was having huge spiritual problems, but like he was on TV, he was fundraising. Um, he was essentially a diplomat, sometimes even formally a diplomat of the U S and of the Holy See. And then this is interesting. The KGB tried to recruit McCarrick yes. as a spy. And uh, that just shows how, and you almost wonder if the KGB had the goods on him. Well, the, the, the KGB was, yeah. And then the FBI asked 
him to work counterintelligence, you know. That's right, right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. not only yeah. did the KGB try to recruit McCarrick, but the FBI then says, yeah, do it, do it. But yeah, so you know? he's got, in this time, the media likes him. He's got uh, friends that are like, you know, rich, rich families. And he has the FBI and the police in New York City and New Jersey love him. So he's got like kind right. of all these, yeah. Right. And this was kind of an interesting point, like, Washington, D.C. used to have this cool bookstore. It might still be there. It was at the old government printing office. It was the government printing office bookstore. It was in mm-hmm. the basement near Union Station. And in that little bookstore, they had like the CIA world like fact book and, and <laughs> these books that were like printed during the Cold War for the U.S. government to help them understand what was going on in Soviet controlled areas yeah. and communist governments. And I remember flipping through one of those books and there was like a big chapter on an essay, like the implications of a Polish Pope on the Cold War, you know? So like both sides were thinking about how the church affected the Cold War. I mean, some people give JP2 a lot of credit for helping bring down communism. So while in Metuchen, most of the bad stuff he did seems to have happened. Like he, um, well, with with seminarians anyway, and uh, priests. He had a lot of scandalous behavior that we described last podcast, a lot of the sharing of the bed at the um, Mm. uh, ski resort. Um, Mother One took her action during this period with anonymous allegations. Oh, actually, some of that happened while he was at Newark. Yeah, one, uh, there was a detail that when he changes diocese, he convinces, I guess, Metuchen originally owned the beach house and he convinces the diocese to sell it to his new diocese. Yes. After he goes to Newark, he yeah. keeps that same beach house because he gets one diocese to sell it to the other. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to throw, it was kind of interesting when he was appointed to Newark at 56, um, there was an issue where they talked about the Newark diocese suffering from doctrinal and discipline issues. And they thought McCarrick could help address that. And that's kind of mm-hmm. interesting. I think like almost everyone outside who's not on the inside of the church has a hard time understanding how power works in the church or how, how it's not quite as hierarchical as it looks. Mm-hmm. Like it's actually quite hard to keep certain people in line sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like I've heard this in religious orders that they were like, the guy hadn't done anything wrong, but they needed to call a certain brother back from Africa who just didn't want to come. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they had to like tell him report on this day four months later at this city you know in the u.s and they weren't going to tell him exactly how to do it or anything because it was just like they were worried the guy would just like you know just leave the order over that you know and i think there's a lot of this kind of weird soft power stuff that's like you have to use persuasion more than like yeah. like it's not like the army where you give orders you know yeah, I, I have a friend who I think in like part of her conversion was uh, she was not Catholic and she always thought like the Catholic Church is trying to do this. The Catholic Church is doing that and realizing that the Catholic Church is not as organized as she thought it was, was like a sort of key piece for her. Yeah, that that's true. It, it's 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 constantly confusing, even for me being, you know, fairly close to the church. I just mm-hmm. it's still it's just interesting the types of ways they have to manage it. So, yeah. So in Newark. The scandal was kind of coming out. He was also still very worldly successful, um, mm-hmm. basically a government employee at some points. And he went everywhere, everywhere the worst parts of the world he was. You know, yeah. like he was in China trying to get the church not persecuted. He was in Yugoslavia when they were having all their problems in the 90s. He was in Syria later in life. 
he was in like every, I mean, he may have had more foreign policy experience than any U.S. diplomat short of like a Harry Kissinger. I mean, he was in Iran. He was in China. Like he, he. Right. And yeah. it doesn't even appear like he was always asked to be. It was just, it seemed like half the time he's like, oh, there's a problem. I'm going <laughs> yeah. to the Central African Republic because they're having a civil war or something, you know? Like he, he was part of a delegation. There was a thing in Iran with like two hikers that right. they didn't want to let go. And he was like part of the yeah. delegation that like went and met with Ahmadinejad and them back home like yeah so i would say you know a little bit of this you know we're going to get to this later that he seems to have like liked showboating mm-hmm. or liked being a high roller yeah. and um he probably did some good things in all of this but he also it also seems to be almost like part of his personality he wanted to be yeah. in the center you know yeah and i think i think when there's a scandal like this or when a person is like so um, deceitful, it's like you want to be able to call them good, bad. And it's like unclear how much of this was self-interest, how much of this was true, like, you know, authentic charity or humanitarian like impulse, you know, and um, just muddies the waters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's, a, it's impossible to tell. Yeah. So during this period, uh, we have our first kind of knowledge where the hierarchy seems to need to do something Mm -hmm. like bishop hughes is a new bishop of metuchen um he has people come into him um priests saying you know this happened to me and he says i'm going to handle it he seems upset about it yeah i think he really was even the Mm -hmm. accusers think he was really upset about it they kind of thought he wasn't really up to the task of handling it it does appear that he handled it at least in the sense of like going to cardinal o'connor in new york city and briefing him Mm -hmm. um which would have been I mean, once again, power in the church is not as hierarchical as it looks. But I mean, technically, Cardinal O'Connor is supposed to be over uh, the bishop of Newark. Yeah. Um, but it's not a, it's not apparent that like anyone can ever get fired in any of this. Right. Yeah. Like, I feel like when I heard about like uh, I went to, you know, public school. But when you'd hear about like bad popes and things like this in the Middle Ages, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I ever really like meditated on what that meant. Like there had to yeah. be people who really loved the church and loved Christ who were like pulling their hair out at bad popes, you know? And they also had no other recourse than to wait for them to die. Yeah. (laughs) And even after they died, sometimes they'd had enough cronies that the next pope wasn't. Or progeny. (laughs) Yeah, progeny that they had. uh, Well, yeah, the corruption could have been multi-generational in those periods, right? Waiting for someone to die seems like a very bad system. But certainly you don't have to promote someone who's doing bad, right? right? Like right. even if they couldn't have removed him from Newark, uh, they did not need to promote him to DC. Right. And not only do you not need to promote someone who's doing bad, you actually don't even need to promote someone who may be doing just fine, but there's questions about him. You don't actually right. even need to right. promote that person. Right. Even if, yeah. And that, and that's kind of where this went was that, Everyone started knowing that there was real questions during this period, mm-hmm. like the nuncio, uh, Cardinal O'Connor, clearly Bishop Hughes. There were a couple mm-hmm. other bishops who witnessed something themselves at a catering shop. They also witnessed naked ambition. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like they had McCarrick drunk and McCarrick's like, I deserve to be you know, a yeah. cardinal yeah. in New York, you know, and I've never seen that in person. And let me, I think you have. So I want to ask you about that. But like, to me, it's like, I listen to a lot of sports talk radio. You can't have the quarterback of your football team go on TV and say, I'm the star. 
I deserve credit or anything yeah. like this, right? Like yeah. they all have this like very practiced like humility about them. You know, mm-hmm. this is even worse in the church, meaning like you should never have naked ambition in the right. church. Right, it's always position should... of servant. Right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that should like ring everyone's alarm bell if someone right. says, I deserve right. to be bishop. Right? Yeah. Have you ever seen that in the church? I, I would say, you know, uh, the beginnings of it, <laughs> At Catholic U, there were guys that, you know, were interested in priests because they want to serve the church. And then you see guys that have maybe some other ideas about what the priesthood is. And I, I feel like that was definitely present in college. And probably more true than the now, because in a way, the priesthood is not held in that high esteem right now. Right. You know, yeah. it is in certain Catholic circles, but I'd say in the 70s and 60s and 80s, yeah. I mean, like McCarrick essentially used his priesthood and then bishopric and things like that to become an international figure, mm-hmm. you know, in world politics. Like I know of a bishop who is a current bishop who thought his position previous to being a bishop was just like not worthy of him, you know, and was waiting to. I think that's what I was thinking of, like, because yeah. I think you told me that story once and I wondered, like, I don't know what you do with that. You know, like if you hear someone speak that way, even like it's like today, we don't really have even a method to like say so-and-so has a naked lust for power. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm like trying to be delicate about this because this person hasn't done any wrong that I can say. Like Besides being ambitious. Yeah, but their way about it, it was like repulsive, you know, like, so I, I don't know what you do with that either. But like, it's like, can is a guy who's kind of a jerk? Is he a good candidate for a bishop? I'm going to go with no, you know, <laughs> like, but another problem with McCarrick, and I think was the attitude of this person I'm talking about is that they thought they were do this. And other people in the church acted like they were do this, you know? And so they were treating these things as like, well, are these allegations credible? Because we want to be fair to him, you know? And it's like, who cares about fairness? If this is not going to be a good look for the church, (laughs) if this isn't going to serve the church, well, forget it. Like if you put all the suspected things on the table and there were problems getting people to stand by their statements and there Mm -hmm. was a lot of gossip during this period and gossip has many forms. Meaning, mm-hmm. like, it's sometimes political, like, so and then it's sometimes personal, like, so and so, like, so and so, and that's why they did this, blah, blah, blah. And then it also has, like, scandal, like, so and so is really bad because they did this, right? Yeah. So they had all this, like, gossip. They had a hard time getting the people who'd been abused or harassed to stick by their story and want to come forward. And they were dismissing the people that did come forward as unreliable. There's really not that many people we're talking about right now, right? Like we're talking about, well, there's anonymous allegations, right? Like letters, so that they dismissed, Mm -hmm. uh, and they shouldn't have. And then there was like three or four people who particularly are outlined in this report. Some of them would not come forward. Some of them wouldn't come forward because science had an active lawsuit going on and they couldn't speak to the Vatican on it because it was going to mess up their lawsuit. But during this period, McCarrick was being considered for different cardinal positions. There's only a a few dioceses in the U.S. that usually have cardinals, like Chicago is one of them. That's one of the places he was considered. And Cardinal O'Connor gets up from brain surgery, like six days after having a brain tumor removed, and is like, I'm going to put an end to this, and like writes the Vatican everything he knows and it appears Bishop Hughes had told him about Metuchen and the mess he was cleaning up. And he said, do not promote this guy. 
Yeah. You know. And Cardinal O'Connor had previously been one of his defenders. Cardinal O'Connor, it's not clear to me who's a defender and who's not, because a lot of these people get put in public situations where they just yeah. kind of seem like they're giving pleasantries that are positive. Yeah. And there's also this idea that Cardinal O'Connor during this period gave McCarrick a big correction and told him to knock it off. And he did. Um, and McCarrick does. And, and yeah. that's the weird thing about the report. Is it's, it does appear that McCarrick's inappropriate, illegal, abusive harassment behavior ends in the mid 90s. Yeah. And it seems to coincide about when Cardinal O'Connor would have confronted him. No one knows for sure if he truly knocked it off, but it just appears that there's no other evidence. Yeah, it, it stops. He also right. is quite old by that time. Yeah, but I want to say something about Cardinal O'Connor's letter. So Cardinal O'Connor does basically the most heroic thing that's in this whole report. He writes this letter. He's trying to put a stop to this, but it's unclear even why it's heroic. Because like he's a cardinal, he's already made it. He's not going to become pope. Yeah. You know, he's near the end of his life. Like he should just be doing this as a matter. It doesn't seem like it takes extraordinary bravery to do what Cardinal O'Connor did. Yeah. It, well, it seemed to me that Cardinal O'Connor's. Although he's a good guy. But. Yeah. I think it was sort of his opinion of McCarrick was evolving and changing, you know, and I think at some point he thought that he wasn't really a threat, that the allegation against him that he knew of was totally, you know, uh, most likely bogus or whatever. And it kind of changes over time. That was my impression. I, I think that's that seems true to me. I think the point that we need to make, though, is like Cardinal O'Connor's letter to the Vatican, which is totally in the report, mm -hmm. even if you think it's probably not true. Mm -hmm. like if you think that Cardinal O'Connor is probably wrong, like let's say you give Cardinal O'Connor only a 10 or 20 percent chance of being correct. Why would you ever promote this guy? Yeah. Even if you think he's probably wrong, it should have ended McCarrick's progression. Cardinal O'Connor's letter, the way it's written, like he's trying to be very clear. You know, like one time I needed to, there's a ministry situation. I needed to call CPS because there was like sexual abuse going on. And I call and I'm asked all these questions and I'm on the phone for an hour and I'm trying to be like so precise and not get anyone in like more trouble than they deserve to be, you know? Like I'm trying to be so exacting with my words that at the end, the woman's like, well, I don't know if I can call this in for sexual abuse. And I was like, what? Whoa, did you hear? anything I just said, you know? And so then I was like, no, 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 hold on. Well, let, let's start again, you know? And it was like, she had sort of just decided at that point. And then they sent somebody into the house for violence instead of sexual abuse. And it was like a stupid situation that got just totally messed up. But I, part of the problem is if I would have just been more, you know, direct. And so Cardinal O'Connor's letter is sort of like, well, he does have these good qualities, but I really don't think you should, you know, do this. But here are some of his, you know, I thought his letter was a little confusing in that way. I thought it was clear what he was trying to say, but people then later point to it and say, well, he did say he has these good qualities. Yeah, that was just kind of dumb, though, when I was thinking about it. Like, there's two cardinals in the Vatican. I think they're cardinals, or at least archbishops. One, his name is R.E. for probably Ray. Yeah, I think Ray. And the other one has a very long name, and it is C-A-C-C-I-A-V-I-L-L-A-N. The last part of his name is almost a villain. <laughs> as far as I know, these guys are operating as best they can. But what they kind of do is they kind of go on this kind of explaining away of Cardinal O'Connor's letter. Yeah. And it doesn't seem that they weren't trying to do what's right. It just seems like they were biased. It seems like maybe they knew McCarrick or they wanted McCarrick for some reason. But it doesn't seem like if they really were trying to protect a predator 
you know, yeah. or get him through, right? And I, a key thing is John Paul II. John Paul II in Poland had seen a lot of, like, the way for communism to attack the church is to create scandal. And so he had seen a lot of false accusations and had a sort of bias that accusations tended to be right. political and false. John Paul II ends up signing off with him becoming cardinal, which seems insane in hindsight, even if there was a yeah. chance of this being true. Right. Yeah. And then as he becomes DC's archbishop and then cardinal, I think a lot of people started calling in with phone calls and doing more reporting from Seton Hall and stuff that was like, are you kidding me? Like, yeah. you should have never appointed this guy, but kind of after the fact yeah. now calling in new stuff. So that's in November 2000. He's named the Archbishop of Washington, and then he's made a cardinal in February 2001. During that time, it's like all these like rumors are bubbling up, and he even has this like uh, director of communications who I knew, and she was wonderful person. People are telling her, hey, he's a shady guy and there's all these rumors and she's like trying to verify them. And she's talking to reporters from different newspapers. This reporter approaches her and says, I'm going to publish this. I'm going to talk to these eight people. I'm just letting you know. And all these reporters are kind of trying to get this story, but it keeps coming up to a dead end because no witnesses are coming forward. All the people that are supposed to like be willing to talk do not talk. She can't verify anything from anybody. Which ends up making him look more innocent. Because like if, if you have all these reporters yeah. digging and Cardinal Ray tried to dig a little bit and people aren't coming forward, it kind of makes it, it does make it look like people are just trying to like character assassinate him. You know, through gossip. He's even able to publish, like, I myself have been a victim of, you know, right. uh, false accusations. He, he's framing the whole thing all the time. And he's yes, doing a like great job of advantage. framing it. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, I wonder, you know, I don't, this was not being discussed that much in this report, but I wonder how much in the U.S. popular sentiment was just not ready for McCarrick's scandal. And I mean that because in 2001, the Boston Globe thing was going down. Right. Mm -hmm. That was real straight up pedophilia. It wasn't like harassing some adults. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that was going down exactly when he was becoming Cardinal. Yeah. Right. So this almost seems like, oh, hey, maybe you have a homosexual Cardinal here who's had some relationship with priests, but it was harder to, I think it was harder to see that as a full blown scandal compared to what yeah. was happening out of Boston at that time. And then yeah. totally, I mean, like weird enough that I went to his theology on tap where he's like trying to explain the church sex abuse crisis to me, but he also takes a leadership role in some of the reforms of the sex abuse crisis, right. including like he's endorsing the zero tolerance policy. Right. Right. What was going through his head when he was doing that? Yeah. You know, I mean, like you, you'd almost think that if he was involved in the reform, he would have lessened the reform. Right. But instead he's like signing on with everyone else. that if you have any accusation that's credible, you're just done. I mean, this yeah. is, this is a very much lower bar than the court of law for a U.S. citizen. Like if you would just have, if it's plausible, you could have been an abuser, you're done. Yeah. You know, all right. What else is going on? Yeah, he's a cardinal under John Paul II. People love him. He starts getting some kind of like enemies because maybe he's like more liberal than people would like. I don't actually know when that started. Go I think ahead. it started over the communion debate that certain bishops right, want to Carey. refuse communion. Yeah. Yeah. yeah to pro abortion, pro choice uh, Catholic politicians. And then he right. took the other side. He's like, let's not fight people at the altar rail. Right. And right. the current cardinal in D.C. was with him on that, Wilton Gregory. Did you see that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had to look up to make sure that was the same guy. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, they both took the stand that that was not where you want to debate that. 
Right. And that got him the label of liberal because up until then, he was considered someone who enforced doctrine. You know, like whenever he was considered as a new bishop. And even they wanted to send him to like Chicago to clean up Chicago. Right. Right. For doctrinal right. problems. So um, another interesting thing, he was already politically connected while being in Washington gets himself like even more in sync with all the things that are going on, you know, in um, Washington politics. Oh, I wanted to say something earlier. Uh, this reporter said this was in the report that there were like a few reasons why they weren't reporting on McCarrick. And apart from not having like solid evidence, it was like he kind of was like a good newsmaker. Like they liked writing about him. He was like news that people liked reading about. Right. And um, so, yeah, so. <laughs> it's an interesting um, bias the media has. I feel like it's worse today than it was then, but it's, it's kind of interesting. Okay. At some point we need to introduce Vagano. Sure. Okay. So Pope John Paul II dies in 2005. There's some idea that maybe he wasn't like totally all the way lucid at the end and other people are kind of running the show. Is anybody covering up? Whatever. I don't know. I don't know what the answer to all that is. But so then Pope Benedict gets elected in 2005. And in September 2005, McCarrick turns 75. So he does his, you know, like turn in his resignation, which is the normal practice when a, when a cardinal turns 75 they hand in a resignation um, and then the Pope decides whether they want to continue their time or whatever. And so he um, decides to extend Cardinal McCarrick for two more years in Washington. Cardinal McCarrick is very excited about this. So that's in September 2005. And then at some point after that, he is like, oh, wait, no, <laughs> there's some scandal here. And he revokes that and he asks McCarrick to resign. And the way it's all worked out, he's like, okay, I'll resign at Easter and then We'll have this other person comes in and um, McCarrick is kind of like asking for like, oh, can we do it this way so that it looks OK, even though it's like Pope Benedict wants him to resign because there's this like apparent scandal um, that is still unconfirmed. Go ahead. I think to remind a little bit about what was going on at that period was it, it seemed like so much stuff needed reformed. Like mm -hmm. I remember Benedict trying to reform the Vatican banking. But then mm -hmm. Francis had to reform it again, like somehow. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. I, and so I think it was just very hard to reform things. But there was also the issue that Benedict, not very shortly after he became pope, took the Legionnaires of Christ guy and put took him out of service. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because of the accusations against him. So I sense that it seemed like there was too much on Benedict's plate to handle everything. Perfectly. Yeah. And he was you know? dealing with abuse crises in other countries. Um right. Yeah, so there, there was a lot. But Benedict basically realizes something is up and is like, oh, actually, no, we're not extending your time two more years and you need to resign. And then he um, has this prefect of the Congregation of Bishops kind of handle all of this. And according to the document, there's like no official sanctions placed on him. It's just like you need to like keep a low profile. You need to move to somewhere where you'll be out of the public eye and kind of Pray and live a more, you know, low, low key life from now on. And so then around this time, this uh, Vigano, who I'm not sure what his position was, he writes these like memorandums for his like superiors that Cardinal McCarrick is like a shady person and intervention needs to happen or else there will be scandal. And it seems like these documents are, are largely ignored. But they also... It's, so Vagano is not yet the nuncio to the U.S. He's he's issuing documents that it's not clear that anyone asked for him. You know, it's right. not like somebody said, "Hey, Vagano, go tackle this." Go look into this, problem. right? Yeah, right. So Vagano is yeah. kind of being a whistleblower, an ineffective whistleblower. 
an ineffective whistleblower, but it's showing where his head's at with all that, yeah. right? Yeah, he's bothered by it. Mm-hmm. Part of this kind of upsetting thing, I don't know if upsetting is the right word, I'm just kind of confused, like, why is everyone in the Vatican a bishop? Like, if you're working in the administrative section that chooses bishops, why are you a bishop? You know, like, yeah. why aren't you a, a lay person even? You know, it, it yeah. just does it's not clear. Like, the only reason why it makes sense to me that all of these administrators in the Vatican are themselves bishops is if that's the only way someone will listen to you. <laughs> I mean, more and more we're seeing the church try to bring laity, trying to bring women into positions where maybe they weren't before. And I always feel like this gets clouded because then people are like, could this mean women priests one day? And it's like, that's not what we're talking about, people. <laughs> um, but yeah. uh, so I, I don't know where it stands, those positions now. Well, clearly, though, one of the reforms is coming out of this sex abuse crisis is laity need to, like, you can't have just priests judging priests. Right. But there's an inherent bias in that. Yeah. And you can't have just priests making all the church organization decisions. Certainly at the parish level, that's true. Even at the diocese level. Like we had a chancellor here. I think Pope Francis is trying to change this. I think he's trying to bring more lay people and more women into higher leadership and decision-making positions. I don't know at the end of the day how much say these people actually have is the question, right? But and, and people are divided on whether that's good or bad even. So my take is to work for the church, you need to be retired or independently wealthy so at any moment you can quit. <laughs> right. You know, like because right. you see like yeah. people who kind of get like in a position like, I really need this job, and then they can't whistleblow. Yeah. Okay, so Vagano is whistleblowing ineffectually. And McCarrick has been given these unofficial <laughs> directives and he does not want to follow them. And if you have ever been in a position uh, where you needed to fire an employee, this is like just so exasperating to read through almost to the point that it becomes comical because it's like, McCarrick, you need to, you know, stop traveling. And he's like, okay, so by stop traveling, you mean I can still keep my trips to like China, Ghana, Iran? And they're like, no, you need to stop traveling. He's like, okay, so that means I can still work for like Catholic Relief Services, you know, and it just goes back and forth, back and forth. And they can't control him. It's like I, I would unclear. say that's like almost a hundred pages of back and forth. Yeah, yeah, right? it, it's it, it's unbelievable. And it's like it's it, it's it is comical. It's like he'll be like, keep yeah. a low profile. Okay, so I swore in the Prime Minister of Ireland, and that's yeah, okay, no, right? It, and then I like opened Congress, but yeah. don't worry because there's other news in the news cycle. And exactly. then like. <laughs> The the media was more focused on the Senate that day. So, you know, yeah, and it's incredible. Like what a huge management headache. And I think one thing that contributes to this is like, who is in charge of him? And you can't fire him. And who is in charge of him? It's unclear who's in charge of him. He's a retired cardinal doing what he wants, basically. And they're they're given like, there are multiple people giving him reprimands and sending him letters, but no one can stop him. And it the other thing is like, it'll be like where he's living is a seminary, which is a stupid place for him to live, right? Yeah. Although there is no reports of abuse and he's, he appeared to have been fine during that period. But they tell him you got to move. And then they like have this internal Vatican discussion of like, okay, so just telling him to go isolate himself somewhere is not an option. He just refuses. Yeah. And he would like get too depressed and it would be like really bad for him psychologically. <laughs> I guess so. You know, it's yeah. just like, yeah, that, just that like, was an yeah, idea that an floated option. around. And yeah. Then, so what are we going to do? It's all negotiation. I once heard that in the Middle Ages, that like uh, monasteries had their own jails for months. <laughs> That's what they needed to do. I know, yeah. I know. It was like, it was like, <laughs> why doesn't the Vatican have a jail? You know? Yeah. 
Oh, and the reason, just to clarify, there's like nothing like illegal that he, you know, there's nothing to send them to like public authorities for, right? Like there's there's not at this point. Oh, yeah. There's civil cases. And he's also not guilty on a legal standard of anything. He's never been put on trial for anything. Right. Um, Yeah. So that is kind of working against it. But you just think that, I mean, the cardinal red means you're supposed to be willing to martyr for the church, right? And all they're asking him to do is shut up for the church. Shut up and sit down. Yeah. And he they can't get him to do that. One thing that comes out about him is that he has this sort of like uh, insatiable thirst to be like important or needed. He's also like very afraid of being alone. And so he's afraid to like, it seems he's afraid to kind of back off. So at the beginning of the report, I, I felt like I was like, oh, what a snake, you know, what a deceitful man. When I'm reading these letters that are going back and forth, like, can I do this? Well, can I do that? You know, it's like, well, I met with the <laughs> president-elect's transition team, and I thought that that could be of service to the church. So I know I'm not supposed to be doing high-profile things, but this seems important. So let me know if you want me to stop. He's always saying, let me know if you want me to stop. He has no intention of stopping. But at some point, I'm reading these letters, and I'm starting to wonder, like, does he think he's more important than he is? Does he think things are going to fall apart? He sort of tried to portray himself as being this sort of important key figure in all these political things. And, you know, has he deceived himself here because of all how persistent he is, you know? I've only met him a handful of times, like at the end of mass and things like that. And I feel mm-hmm. like he told me he was a very important person. Yeah, that's like he, he told me what yeah. his job was. He told me where he was going to next and how it was with like working for the Library of Congress or working yeah. for this or I'm going to Syria. Like, it was almost like he was advertising it, too. So Vigano. So there are these um, nuncios that are kind of like trying to keep him under control. Um, and Sambi is right before Vigano. And then Vigano comes in and he's um, he's the new nuncio. He's the new nuncio. Uh, nuncio what is a nuncio? nuncio? I think they are sort of like an ambassador between like a country and the Vatican, I think is a way to understand. I think there's also an ambassador, though, is the confusing part of that. I'm not sure. So I don't know. Okay, but certainly so they're like the Vatican's what... representative in the U.S. is the papal mm-hmm. nuncio in, in D.C. And that's what Pagano yeah. was. So even though he'd been kind of a pain and a whistleblower, he kept getting promoted, which is good. Yeah, right. And so he's trying to keep McCarrick under wraps. He doesn't do it that well. And it's uh, difficult to tell how committed he is to it the whole time, because sometimes he's more lenient with him. And this happened with the other nuncios. But everything explodes, right, when the Archdiocese of New York announces that there's like uh, credible allegations that McCarrick had molested a minor. And so this was in 2017. In 2018, McCarrick is officially removed uh, from ministry. It seems to me that a couple years before he was removed was when he was sent out to Victoria, Kansas, which is the middle of nowhere. Like that's exactly finally the Vatican succeeded in getting him to live a low profile life. He went to live in a Capuchin friary far away Mm -hmm. from an airport. I'm sorry, this wasn't after the accusation came out in New York? I think it might have been, it must have been like right after. Okay. But I remember he was out there for quite a while before they laicized him. Yeah. And now no one knows where he is, which is probably Right, okay. Yeah. yeah, and so the allegations are found credible and everything, and so then everything starts. Um, so then Vigano drops this like bombshell letter saying everyone in Rome knew about this. Basically, he calls out all specific bishops. Pope Francis needs to resign because he knew about this and he did nothing and names a bunch of people, what they know, says he uh, took 
talked to Pope Francis in 2013 about it. He talks about being um, pleased when uh, Pope Benedict like officially placed sanctions on him and uh, different things. But basically, he's like whistleblowing to the whole world with this document. And it's like a bombshell. It's, it's a bombshell. Let's review these characters real quick or these people, because mm -hmm. it's I don't think it's as clear as Vagano said. And I think Vagano's own role in this is not as clear as he said. So Whirl. Uh, Cardinal Whirl took on the D.C. Diocese after McCarrick. Cardinal Whirl, we've seen some evidence in this report, was kind of told McCarrick is not your problem. It'd be too difficult for you to handle. We'll handle it here at the, with the nuncios, basically. He's never given a clear expectation of what he's supposed to be doing. There's also no like church hierarchy thing, like when you have a Cardinal Emeritus and a Cardinal in the same diocese who's in charge of, you know. I saw at least one thing where they said, don't make Cardinal Whirl deliver bad news to McCarrick. Mm -hmm. Having said that, Cardinal World does not come out good in this, yeah. but he doesn't come out like he was disobeying orders either, which I feel like was something going around. And then yeah. Vagano is interesting because he seems to be very kind of like a stickler for order, a stickler for anti-corruption, which is, I think, good. He seemed to have been super happy with Pope Francis's appointment, thinking Pope Francis was going to re reform everything and that he was even, people said, we even thought Vagano was going to get a job helping Pope Francis reform everything. They thought that because yeah. of what Vagano was telling people, how happy he was yeah. with Pope Francis. And then by the end, a couple of things happened. One, Vagano is not that hard on McCarrick. Like Vagano is, Vagano is the nuncio and he's not enforcing the laws that he claims were there or the rules. He's appointed nuncio instead of um, getting this position in like Vatican finance reform that had been a project he had been working on before and was like sort of his passion. And he feels like slighted by this or something. Okay. You know? I thought he was yeah. already a nuncio by then, but that's okay. good to know. But I, I just got the sense that like there's something in the Vagano thing that is inconsistent because it's like he's like Pope Francis bad because he didn't do it. Was, well, Vagano, you didn't do it either. Yeah, right. You know, right. like you did. You actually were kind of wimpy with McCarrick. We've seen what you've written and what was said. And it, you're kind of wimpy on this, right? Yeah, there's a, even a point where Vagano is like he's trying to bring things up. I think in 2008, he uh, brings something to the prefect of the congregation of bishops or somebody. And they're like, OK, you need to follow up on this and find the credible stuff. And he doesn't really do anything, <laughs> you yeah. know? Yeah. And I think overall, Vagano is a good guy. It's just yes, like, yeah. he's not consistent in this report yeah. being a good guy. And Pope Francis, I, I am most sympathetic with the popes. I know a lot of people probably most are angry at all three popes mm -hmm. who are involved in this, but I feel like JP2 in some ways looks the most guilty. It's hard to understand. It's uh, mostly the popes seem Fairly removed. <laughs> well, Pope Benedict, we know, was doing some active reform. JP2 seems to have been a little bit behind on what was actually going on. Yeah. And then Pope Francis is the person who laicized Theodore McCarrick. Yeah. Right? So, like, of all three of them, the only person who succeedingly took him down is Pope Francis. Regardless of whatever you say, I mean, JP2 not only didn't put him down, he promoted him. And Pope Benedict did not successfully shut him down, but Pope Francis did. So I, I don't know, like I, to me, that bothers me that Pagano went after Pope Francis that hard, I suppose. I guess, didn't he go after Pope Francis, though, before Pope Francis had laicized McCarrick? 
No, I think Pope Francis removed McCarrick from the College of Cardinals in July 2018. And then in August 26, 2018 is when Vigano releases his letter. Which maybe, you know, at this point, though, it, you could say that it looked like Pope Francis was just trying to cover his, you know, <laughs> behind, right? Because there's public allegations now. So it's like he's just doing what had to be done. Any any pope would have done it. Well, I don't know if any pope would have, I don't I, I disagree. We can't say any pope would have done it cuz when's the last pope that way aside the cardinal? Yeah, I guess right. Ever? Okay. I I mean yeah, I'm not sure know. it has a historical parallel. We know that Pope Francis did it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it doesn't make Pope Francis look great, but I don't think it makes him look bad either. So I think the most troubling thing is how much kind of went unchecked under JP2. And I don't know yeah. that that's his fault, and I, but it has definitely happened. Yeah, I think when a lot of people read this document, they were like, was JP2's like sainthood cause too hasty? And I did not see that in this document. Well, I think that's kind of a question of this whole series of us reviewing the church sex abuse crisis, because it appears that this is a problem that has gone on for a long time in the church. We already mentioned the reason of there was no due process in the church to deal with it. There was no way mm -hmm. of removing these people. Uh, we also mentioned the language and even the societal understanding of this had not caught up to where we are now. You know, yeah. But looking back on this whole thing, the points we've already made, I think, are, are good. There also were these like moments in the history of the McCarrick issue where whistleblowers blew a whistle. I'm thinking the one we haven't mentioned is Richard Seip. He's mm -hmm. like a psychotherapist and he'd worked with people and he was like publishing open letters, yeah. you know, calling things out. And what his letters were kind of accusing was there is almost like a conspiratorial angle of this, that some of these people got promoted very high up. Cardinal McCarrick is his example, and then a couple of dead people are his example, like an abbot and somebody else, where it actually means that maybe it's the wolf in sheep's clothing and they just made it all the way to the top, or maybe they um, actually created conditions to create greater abuse by other people too, you know, mm -hmm. kind of like in the last five years of American politics, there's talks of like pedophile rings, right? Yeah. That kind of blew me away when I first heard it, because I'm like, if you're going to do something heinous, why would you have a bunch of co-conspirators? That sounds like stupid, yeah. right? But this brings that up. You know, McCarrick getting as high in the church as he did, and what Richard Seip is saying is, you have to take it seriously that that at least could have happened. And Vigano brings it up in his letter. Right. And am I right in thinking that Vigano equates all of this to homosexuality? He is very concerned about that. Like a homosexual subculture. Yeah. Vigano is also talking about this as a seminary problem. And I would agree with him that there was a seminary formation problem, not just like, oh, we didn't teach them about proper sexuality. No, there was a bigger yeah. seminary formation problem that people were being victimized in seminaries. Like I heard a rumor that it was like, if you're caught with a girl in seminary, you're definitely kicked out. But if you're caught with a guy, you kind of get slapped on the wrist or something like that, right? Yeah. Um, wasn't as big a deal, which would mean there was a homosexual subculture protecting that behavior. Yeah. Hate saying all that, that's all gross. Anyway. I think we've covered the McCarrick report. What would you like to say kind of in conclusion? Maybe just one thing that we didn't talk about too much is um, how much of this maybe got lost in like conservative liberal politics, you know, and um, trying to get your guy in the right place because you have a sort of ideology or whatever. And McCarrick was able to he told a lot of people that he had enemies in Rome, he had enemies, and, and that people kind of bought that. So I don't know, some, somehow the, the political aspect of this kind of messed things up, yeah. <laughs> to me, that 
is kind of all part of the gossip aspect of it too. Like because there was no day in court where things were brought forward, because there was a lot of personal friendships and because of politics, yeah. it was a mess. It was a very human mess. But I think we need to bring it into clarity and not conflate things. The big problem in my mind is when he was appointed to Washington. Like by the time he was in Newark, there was enough smoke, even if you didn't believe it, and Cardinal O'Connor came out strong that the way the Vatican continued, promoted him to Washington was kind of an inexcusable error. Yeah. And the bishops lied or omitted for that to happen. And, and even if you can't remove a guy, you can't promote him, you know? And, and so we need a way to remove people like mm -hmm. he was removed. But so that to me is the biggest issue. And then the second issue that almost became comical was just, you know, the whole retirement fiasco and resignation mm -hmm. fiasco and everyone soft pedaling around, shutting him down, mm -hmm. um, hoping it didn't get too crazy public. Yeah. Uh, all this, all the rumors and scandal. And, but, but once it did become public, lots of people came forward and said, yeah, this, they were victims way in the day, you know, like seventies yeah. and eighties victims yeah. of this man. So I don't know what to say about it at the end of the day. Like I'm upset about the appointment to DC, see how it happened. And I know clearly we need whistleblowers and I know clearly we need some form of due process to remove people, put this stuff on trial, do investigations. You know, I don't know that a quote unbiased report is the right way. I thought this was a pretty unbiased report. I don't really have a problem with it, but yeah, I, I just don't know that unbiased reports are the right way to get justice. Right. And this report sort of answers to no one. It's not actually part of any like official process in the church. It's something that the church did to get some answers, but. Right. I'm glad they commissioned the report, but like, you know, in the U.S. justice system, we have someone state kind of the affirmative and negative and hash it out, you know? Yeah. And um, you, you feel like maybe there was a need for some, like, like we need some form of working on these issues that looks a little bit more like that. Right. And if somebody needs to be investigated, that it's not just up to the discretion of whoever bishop is put in charge of it to ask around to a few people, you know? Yeah. Asking around is not an investigation. No. Right. Yeah. And I think that the like him being appointed to Washington literally rested on like four bishops being asked questions about him, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, let's let's wrap this up. I think it's really important that we cover this. What's important is this is what a lot of people know about the Catholic Church. If you're going to be a missionary of the church or you're going to give any type of honest representation of the church, you need to understand what happened and what changed. It's not as important as the gospel of Christ, but it's very important. Yep. Good to see you, Laura. See you, you next too. week. See ya. All right. God bless. You too.